everybody, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they can shift from a pharmaceutical career to a gaming career, and that they can host a made-up podcast about made-up games just fine. Or that they don't shut up about finding hand sanitizer for 20 cents at a gas station and buy much more than needed. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, we are preparing for a little giveaway on Twitter. So if you want to pitch us items to raffle, follow us on Twitter at Deeper Than Data. For those listening in Madison, or for you really diehard fans, we will be helping out with the Wisconsin Science Festival in October, which means we will have a booth for the Science on the Square event on Friday, October 22nd. More details to come. I'm very excited to share today's episode with you. It's a deep dive into figuring out yourself, the economics of the Magic the Gathering card game, because we're all nerds on this podcast, management, and how to be flexible with a college degree in science. Let's get to it with writer, comedian, and magic wizard, Jason Ault. Jason, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I can't complain. Sometimes I still do, I guess. Next, if someone was going to bump into you on the street, what would you look like? Uh, you know what Timothy Oliphant looks like? Uh, nothing like that. I have a beard because I don't have a jawline. Uh, I'm almost six feet tall in that anything over 5'10 is almost six feet. And um, I'm a professional kickboxer. Oh, cool. I'm I'm hoping that's not sarcasm. I feel like oh, I'm... Would, that, would, you, would you have bought that? I would have. All right. Yeah. And as far as anybody knows, I'm a professional kickboxer. <laughs> which I called the sweet science, which is, uh, which is why you may have been confused into inviting me on this podcast. Got it. Yeah, I also feel like I'm just generally a trusting person. Um... If someone if someone asked me like, hey, I I'm having trouble getting this car started in this really dark alley uh, at 1 a.m., I think I would still probably go try to help them. But so far, not murdered. Made it 30 years without being murdered. Congrats. Is there a, a, a Hallmark card for that? I, there should be. They really don't uh, go out to specific endeavors anymore. Hallmark. It's just very general these days. Next, are there any identities about yourself you'd like to highlight? I think a lot of people, when they are interested in talking to me, are interested in how I managed to only make money from gaming. Um, that's like all I do now. And uh, uh, that I am a stay-at-home dad who also works full-time in uh, content production. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, most of the people I've had on the podcast so far are faculty but when i was doing my research about you it was just like yeah i want to know more um i don't know many people who are in that position in their life and making it work so i'm i'm very eager to dive in more um and hear about your journey first we have to go back though with the standard question for everybody of who is your first crush oh uh lola bunny i bet comes up a lot no that's our first one but oh. i can see it 
Now, I'm, uh, I was born in 1984, so my Lola Bunny is Jessica Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But I, I think I saw that movie inappropriately young, so like she didn't really do it for me. I'm like, uh, wow, the dudes in suits really seem to like the leggy cartoon lady. There must be a reason. Yeah. Similarly, I was also watching um, inappropriate movies at a very young age. I think one of the first two I remember watching, probably around age three or four, was Rocky Horror Picture Show and Pulp Fiction. And my mom just assumed I was too young to remember any of it. But I mean, as far as I can tell, no permanent damage. And like I said, haven't been murdered. Then I want to go back a little bit more, too, because you've had, from what I can gather, a really interesting career path um, with some commonalities that I feel like you've had a knack for finance in some sort of ways, probably gaming, and perhaps a little bit of testing out, which I would call a little bit of science, too. So I was just going to see... Did you start like having a knack for any of those subjects like when you were in grade school, middle school, anything like that? I was just on the college prep course the whole time. So when you're on college prep, it's like we don't care if you're good at math. You need to do all of the calculus you can before you're allowed to go to college. So I didn't love math, but I had to like I get a perfect score on the English section of the ACT. And I was like, I'm going to major in chemistry. And my English teacher was like, why? And I was like, because what can I do with an English degree? Uh, it's my first language. So if you have an English degree, I, I don't, I'm not slamming it. Um, maybe I should have gone and gotten that considering I write two articles a week and do zero sciences. Um, but at the time, it felt to me like... Uh, the jobs I wanted to do required a science degree, so I just did all the stuff that you have to do. My father worked at the cereal company Kellogg's, which has a plant in Manchester in the United Kingdom. So he had the option to transfer there for two years to kind of do some work in their engineering department, restructuring it and kind of streamlining things and making them work like they did in the engineering departments in the U.S., so I lived in the UK for a couple of years and in their middle school, which like would have been the equivalent of my eighth grade in the US, um, they did have a little bit more. It wasn't like general science like I had at my school. They're like, we have a chemistry class and a physics class and a biology class versus like I took science and then sometimes you did biology stuff. So I did really well in chemistry. When I first got there, like the first day I was there, they're like, here's some tests for kids who have been in this system for three years. And I did very poorly because of course I did. And then at the end of the year, they retest everybody. So they put the worst kids and the best kids with uh, the best teacher. And then like the second best kids and the second worst kids with another teacher. So I had the teacher that taught the best chemistry students and the worst chemistry students. So... They kept me with him, but I got moved up to the that class for the best chemistry students, which was fun for me. So moving up in the physics and chemistry classes was cool for me. Um, I, I enjoyed having excelled at that just by virtue of having a good teacher in the remedial class. So when I got back from the UK, I took chemistry in, in American high school. And of course, I did well at it because I'd seen all of it before, you know, or at least half of it. I was interested in forensic science at that point. So I went uh, I went to Michigan State University and majored in chemistry, thinking 
I was going to apply to their forensic chemistry graduate program. And that did not end up happening. Um, but I still got the the chemistry and degree from Michigan State. And uh, so I guess having a, a couple of very good uh, chemistry teachers, the one in the UK and then my chemistry teacher when I moved back to the US, I had two very good chemistry teachers. And I think that's why I picked chemistry. Yeah. Were you involved with any other uh, clubs or anything else like that in, in your college days? Not really. I did... They had like quiz bowl tournaments where high school kids would come to the college and like I, I proctored, but I didn't do any like trivia stuff like that. I did. Uh, I was an improv improv comedy troupe in college. The improv, I would count as like an extracurricular and also I would guess like a nice balance to having to do a lot of calculus and science work, like a just really different part of your brain. And, you know, I, I just started doing my first improv class uh, two years ago. And it was just so enjoyable to just have a completely different mindset to go into after spending the day analyzing data and researching. I don't know if it was the same for you or not. I, I, yeah, I just, I guess I was just interested in comedy and there really wasn't the infrastructure to do open mic standup at that time. Now it's everywhere. If you want to do open mic standup, there's 10 bar shows in every college town. You can't absolutely do it. You can start when you're 20, like I should have. I didn't start stand-up till I was 30, just because for me, when I was 20, I was intimidated by going to a comedy club for a comedy club audience and doing my first set ever. Yeah. To me, it sounds like you've got a lot of creative energy and just like applications to, you know, more the quote unquote hard sciences, mathematics, and also this creative outlet through comedy or improv. Were you writing a lot of jokes and not like going up to the mic at that point? You have to be immersed in stand-up, I think. I think it took me 10 years to write my first five minutes, and it took me 10 days to write my second five minutes. It's kind of how that works, because I was just go to a bunch of open mics, and then just once you're telling jokes, once people are giving you tags, once you're immersed in it, it comes way easier. So I guess I always aspired to it, but I was very intimidated by it, and... I still think doing your first set ever at an open mic night at a club is a mistake. As in, like, it's not going to be the actual comedy that you perform later on? I I just think it's not the right setting for it. I, I think it I think it intimidates people. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure if I were destined to be a stand-up comic and nothing else, you know, if instead of having children, I would have moved to New York or Los Angeles or Chicago to where I could do 10 open mics a night instead of 10 open mics a week. Um, then starting at a club probably would have been fine, but I just, it didn't seem like an option to me. So I just sort of backburnered it and I liked being funny, but I didn't write stuff in the style of a, uh, like jokes that are delivered in the style of stand-up. Yeah, I've also, I've done like an open mic night at a comedy club, which was really fun to do and it went well. And that took a couple of years for me, I think, to get ready and over, like similar to you, like overcome that, that fear. And now I wanted to go back and then COVID came. So it'll happen at some point. Um, but I, I noticed like for me, perfectionism was definitely 
a barrier for me going out in front of audiences because I think I wanted to nail it immediately, which is just impossible to do. And also, like, I found after doing it for, you know, a bunch of years that the way I write is I will take a half-baked premise on stage and work it out. I don't overwrite. I come up with a premise if I have a few bullet points that I want to get to that I think would be nice tags. But for the most part, I will just try to tell it on stage. And if something works, I'll keep it. And if something doesn't, I cut it. And I just workshop it that way. Were you were you shifting into comedy or improv more after you did undergrad? Since you were thinking about going to do the forensics, that didn't pan out. Where did you go next? I think it was a huge setback um, to not have a path. Because I kind of thought, oh, I'm just going to be a forensic scientist. Um I took one forensic science undergrad class, forensic entomology, and uh, well, I, it's a graduate class, but I took it as an undergrad. I was allowed to do that. Um, it was a forensic entomology class where you would, they threw a pig out in a, in a cornfield because Michigan State has cornfields. Boy, does it have cornfields. They had lots of fields to go throw a dead pig in, and we would, we would come to our pig and we would measure the insect activity and you could determine from like the size of the the fly larva in the body how long it had been there so the um the the michigan state police lab didn't really have a lot of internship slots and they didn't have any for for undergrads so i kind of made my own internship i called the uh the the police department in, in town where I, where I live with my parents in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I was like, hey, I'm interested in becoming a forensic chemist. Is there anything I could do in your lab? And they're like, we don't have a huge lab. We send almost everything to MSP, you know, but we do some stuff. We do our own fingerprint stuff, you know, super glue fuming and uh, the ninhydrin reaction where you put like this, uh, you kind of mist like a piece of paper or something like that and heat it up and the the um, sebum and the fingerprints will like turn purple and you can see a fingerprint, stuff like that, you know? Um, so nothing huge, but it was still forensic chemistry and it was still a chance to like be in the lab. And I did not like working for a police department. Um, to get into that lab, I would have had to basically go through the like police officer training, like police academy and, I would have to like work as a trooper for a while and then like apply for an opening in the lab. And it was like that almost everywhere. The fact that I would have had to become a cop, which I did not want to do. The fact that it was very competitive and I probably wasn't going to get in. Um, how disillusioned I kind of was from the internship. It kind of left me without a career path. So after I graduated um, with my degree in chemistry, I went to law school for a year and I realized I did not want to do that either. So I moved back near where I grew up and, and got a job um, at a contract research facility. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I moved to a company that did generic drugs and I was just doing quality testing in their quality lab. And that was a one year contract when it ended um, I didn't get hired, which is a thing that happens. And my my buddy was an engineer. He had decided that he was going to stop being an engineer and full time devote himself to 
buying and selling Magic the Gathering cards for profit. I started going to events with him and then through networking, got some writing gigs and those writing gigs started paying more and more. And then I I joined a podcast and the, the podcast has a Patreon. I decided that I wanted to pay people to write articles on the website for the podcast. So I spent two years learning how to be a content manager. So then I pitched myself to a company that it's a huge database for how to build decks for uh, for one of the Magic the Gathering formats. All the all the work I've done for the last 10 years has all been in the Magic the Gathering community. And part time, I now make more money than I did full time as a chemist. At the end of that 10 years, I'm sure if I'd stayed as a chemist for 10 years, I'd make even more. But I'm, you know, I, I'm working the hours I want to work. I'm doing the work I want to do. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever go back to the lab. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing the thing that you like, uh, why change it? And were you always like interested in Magic the Gathering? Or was it when your friend just decided to quit? You were kind of like around the, the comic scene, which overlaps sometimes. Um but was it like a lifelong thing that you'd always been playing? I started when I was 12. Let's date myself. That was 96. Something about it, like I, I, I just started playing and I never, I never stopped. I played all through college. It always blows my mind that none of us work for Wizards of the Coast, right? The company yes. that makes the yeah. card game. We don't work for Hasbro. We are just people. And enough people watch my YouTube videos that I get money from it. And I don't have to go work at Starbucks. Yeah. And with your content creation too, I mean, especially now, like you're saying, it's it's pretty democratized in that almost anyone can do it if they have a camera or a mic. It sounds like your progression to making content was pretty slow and steady, maybe slightly before like a mad rush to jump into things. Am I am I correct in that? Or did you just have like a kind of spontaneous one moment that seemed to launch you? As soon as I started full-time trading cards at events, yeah. Do you have a system? I mean, I, I bet you probably do for like figuring out something that is good and you don't have to tell it by any means. But why well, write about it? And my articles are free to read on mtgprice.com. So if you are interested, you know, I, I talk about my method a lot, so I would not mind going into it in detail here. Yeah. I mean, I'm just curious like, if it just took some time for you to develop, because I'm imagining when you're thinking if it's something good, you're probably imagining that it's combination of cards that can work with others some either releasing the set previous ones it's it, it, it seems like a fun position because you get to kind of be the the guru and also you're making money but also thinking creatively all the time to see what is like a good card or not so there are a lot of different ways to do it there's like oh this card was just they just said they're going to print this card in a future set and the, here's a picture of it you know we think that this card will be good and it's pre-selling for less than I think it's going to pre-sell or like eventually sell for. So I'm going to buy, you know, a bunch of copies for three bucks pre-sale, hoping it goes to seven and I can buy list it for five. That's a that's a thing. There is this card was just unbanned. Let's all scramble and try to buy all the copies before everybody else does and hope our orders don't get canceled and hope we can sell them before everyone realizes it was unbanned because it's not good. The method I like is there is a new card. It's going to make an old card that wasn't good before good now in combination. There's a if if you know anything about Magic the Gathering, the, when I say a casual format, there's a format called uh, Commander where 
instead of playing regular like magic duels where you both have a 60 card deck and you're you know trying to hit each other for 20 damage um in commander you have twice as much life you have a much bigger deck and it's four player usually so the games are slower you get to play bigger more um more like powerful but slow cards that you couldn't in other formats because they're just it's the the person would kill you before you played them and so this this uh this commander format prices move slower too so when they will print a new say there's a, a new commander you can build a whole deck around this one card in a way you kind of can't in the other formats so that's why i like commander because they print one new card and people are like, is this card going to be expensive or not? And I say, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because what this card does is takes this $2 card that hasn't been played since 1997 and makes it a $10 card because there are so few copies. Everybody's going to want one to go in this deck. And if you see that before anybody else does, they have to buy the copies from you for $10. Having data early on how people are building, um, allows you to 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 see stuff that i i don't have to figure out the format better than anybody else because the wisdom of the crowds will be like 76 percent of the people that built and registered a deck based on this new card all played this and you'll look at it and be like how does that work with it you know oh that's how it works you don't have to, it helps to know but you don't even have to because everybody else will just figure it out for you and then the data will show what they're doing and since the markets are so inefficient because you have to buy physical cardboard, wait for someone to ship it to you, and then you ship it to the person who bought it from you versus digital transactions, which, you know, happen in, a, in an eye blink. Um, since things are kind of inefficient in that way, you can kind of say, I think there are 176 copies of this card for sale on this website. When all 176 are gone, people are going to realize, oh, that's not a $2 card. It's a $5 card, actually. But you have 176 copies worth of time to get it from other websites. Because there are some websites that kind of signal the market that stuff is being bought. And some websites where it just it sells out and no one notices. So you just amass copies at the old price and then you just wait for demand to change the price. You're not manipulating anything. You are just being prepared for the inevitability of demand to remove the supply for you. My method is very safe, very repeatable, and uh, I'm happy with my gains and I'm not making things hard on anybody. Yeah, and I, like I, I, I'm sensing too, it's like you don't want to do wrong by anybody like you you are just like you're saying there's inefficiencies has there been a trade that you're just like hell yeah i got that done um like this is gonna just pay off like so much or some someone that you're just extremely proud of yeah anytime i see something coming early it makes me feel real good there have been cards that i was like i think this is too good i can't believe it's pre-ordering for three dollars and i bought uh, like hundreds of dollars worth and then it turned into thousands of dollars that's happened quite a few times so i've also thought about investing in magic and you know i would probably lose money in the very beginning until i got a bit savvy but one of the things that also makes me hesitant to do this is in that it is 
it seems to be like one specific product. I'm I'm not as risky in investments, and so the, the investments that I do have are more like mutual funds with lots of different stocks that are making them up to absorb some of that risk. You know, and also if this is gonna hurt your reputation or anything, feel free not to answer it. But are you worried that magic will ever collapse? Or do you think it's large enough now that it's probably gonna be something around for quite some time? There is no game around football cards. This is what I keep coming back to. People are like, what about the comic book bubble? You know, and I'm like, well, the comic book bubble was any company could make a comic book. There wasn't just Wizards of the Coast's comics and then they were the only ones making them, right? Like, no other company can come along and make Magic the Gathering cards. So when the stuff is not mass produced and there are older cards that they have promised never to reprint. There is stability baked in. Um, I think if magic as a game, if a meteor hit wizards of the coast, or if Hasbro said no more magic and they fired everybody, if something traumatic happened, there would be years, maybe decades where the stuff was still desirable because Magic is a trading card game, but also a collectible card game. You see on lines like Alpha Black Lotus sells for $100,000. And it's not because an Alpha Black Lotus is better in the one format where you can play Black Lotus than an unlimited Black Lotus that was printed way more, right? That slabbed, slab meaning they sent it to a company that graded it that graded it like nearly perfect. That was the one alpha black Lotus that had been slabbed. That was nearly perfect. That was a collectible thing. So as much as black Lotus is a good magic card and that's why it's iconic, it's also iconic and that matters too. So playable cards matter certainly, but collectible cards matter too. Magic, the gathering original art will still be sold and traded. You know, um, it, it's just it, the people with crypto money. It's it's no different than like 80s Wall Street dudes buying like paintings, right? There is so much associated with the game that is just for nostalgia and collectability. And if they stop making magic cards tomorrow, I would still be able to play with all of my cards. So what would have to happen for magic? Yeah, what would happen to happen for magic to collapse? Everybody would have to hate it. So even if the game stopped being produced, you know, people would have to hate it. Nobody's making copies of Smash Brothers for the N64 anymore. Right? Like, the Nintendo 64 didn't collapse. It just sort of moved on, but uh, people want N64 copies of Smash Brothers and they'll pay 100 bucks for them. What does Magic Collapsing even look like? everybody would have to not want it anymore because people all decided they didn't want beanie babies anymore right because it was a fad magic's been going since 93 i think it's demonstrably not a fad right and i think they also did a really great job in like you're saying at the very beginning they've allowed so many communities to pop up around the game and not necessarily patrol it so people can really feel they've got their own little niche within the community um, I'm going to switch to a few open-ended questions before we get to our improv game. 
Uh, I know you do manage a group of people at ED Shrek to produce content, and you probably have, and like, well, definitely you've mentioned in this interview that you were doing that in other websites. Do you have uh, a specific managerial style you go for? I recognize, as a content manager, I recognize that the website has needs. And I try to find somebody who can meet those needs. And I try not to micromanage. I try to put myself out there as somebody who could, like, if you have a question, come to me. But sometimes I give less feedback than people are used to. And it's like, if you're not getting feedback from me, that's good because you haven't screwed anything up. So I'm a little bit less hands-on. It's kind of hard to get hired at EDH Rec because we don't need any writers right now. So when people pitch EDH Rec now, sometimes it takes a month of emails to get hired if I really like their pitch. And I hire less than 1% of the people who apply. So there are a lot of people just, I don't know, you're not meeting the website's needs or you're pitching something very unoriginal. Uh, I think you should shoot your shot. Absolutely. I think people should shoot their shots a lot. People are afraid to change, and sometimes change means getting a new job that you didn't have before, just like having a new side thing. Since it's so hard to get hired at EDH Rec, once I do hire you, I'm confident that you are going to do exactly what I need just based on what you said you wanted to do. So my managerial style is to really make sure I hired the right person for the job. Really, really, really make sure that when I hire somebody, they're going to do what I want. And then my managerial style is to let them take risks. People will be like, could I change my article series to this? And I'm like, well, that's not exactly what we need. But at the same time, I hired you. And if you want to do this, we can always go back to what you were doing before. So... Some people have pitched me on new series. Um, sometimes I've said yes, sometimes I've said no, but I kind of wait for people to ask me questions. I don't feel the need to reach out to somebody because, look, I already think you can do this because I made you jump through a lot of hoops to get hired. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, you know, with this podcast, it's my, I think my real first test of building a team. And that's exactly what I'm trying to go for, too, is be resource if needed, be some leadership in the vision of what we're trying to craft. But I, I trust you, you know, like I'm not going to just take anybody on here and you demonstrated that you can do some really cool stuff. So I, I trust your gut, not only that you make the right decisions, but the ideas that you will bring to the table are going to be a value for the podcast, even if it wasn't something that I thought was what we needed. I never think that I, as a content manager have the best vision for the the whole website you know there there have been some things that i thought wouldn't work that i let people try so i i guess i, I probably have more of an ego in my 20s and in my 30s i've kind of learned to i don't i don't like to be proven wrong later I would rather have somebody try something and it, have it not work out. But like, so what are the stakes for something not working out on a website where we make little articles about a casual format of a children's card game? There are no stakes in Magic the Gathering content production. You can only succeed a little less. So why would I let just my one view based on my own experiences 
um, hold somebody back from trying something. Cause I've been astounded so many times by something that someone did in the magic community. I'm like, that is, that's the dumbest like type of a podcast or type of a series or like, I, I can't believe everybody loves this thing. This person's doing and I'm wrong. When you asked me what my management style was, I blanked for a second. I was like, do I even have one? But the more I think about it, the more it's just sort of like, don't lose, don't lose sight of the fact that failure doesn't exist almost, right? Like, if you impressed me with a pitch and I hired you, what are the odds you don't know what you're talking about? What are the odds you're going to say something that sounds wrong to me and then you're just insane? You know, what are the odds that maybe it doesn't sound right to me because I'm basing it off of everything everyone's already doing and you are trying to do something brand new? And why would I why would I try to stop you from doing that? So I have allowed people to try things that did not sound good to me at all. I think that you have to mature to do that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think myself, I've. I still lean towards wanting to have a lot of control. I think it's eased, um, especially with doing the improv. I think that's been really helpful. I also really like this mentoring and managerial style because you're building people's confidence. Because I think oftentimes people will have jobs that are really specific, sometimes uh, repetitive. And if you say like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with you taking a risk, it might be one of the first times they ever hear that to just have an idea that's completely their own to just try out. So that's, I feel like that's another <laughs> additional bonus. My last question before we go to the improv game, because you've had, I think such a interesting life going in between professions. Is there a piece of advice that you would give to yourself when you were younger, maybe 18 after your wisdom that you've accumulated now? When I was still doing job interviews, there was a story I told, um, that when I, uh, when I first moved to college, I had to get a job on campus. And I think my dad just like, he wanted to reduce some of my screwing around time. And he just wanted to like, have me have some beer money. So I wasn't always hitting him up all the time. So he like insisted I get a job. And the easiest place to get a job right in my dorm room was in the, uh, the cafeteria, right? You didn't really pick where you worked. There was like, well, okay, we have all kinds of needs. There's people that like clean the tables. There's people that check people's student IDs to get into the dining room. There's people that do the dishes. So we're going to put you kind of all over. And I was like, I just really want to check people's IDs. You know, I worked as a cashier last summer. This seems kind of similar to that. I really just kind of want to do the ID check-in. They're like, yeah, you don't really get to pick here. We'll put you on one shift of ID checking, but like, we're going to put you wherever. And I was like, ah, all right. That's, that kind of sucks. I really just wanted to do the ID checking. And they're like, okay, but you got to work in the dish room. I was like, oh, fuck, I don't want to work in the dish room. And that first semester, I had one ticket checking or ID checking shift every week. And it was hell. You couldn't read. You couldn't do anything. You just sat there in a chair for like five hours, looked at people's IDs. You looked at their face to make sure that it was them. And you swiped it through to take one meal off their thing. And people would give each other their IDs all the time. And like, apparently everyone thinks you're a narc. If you're like, this isn't you, you, someone gave you, but like, who cares? It's a college kid giving a friend a meal. Like, why was I, why was I being a cop about this? 
So like every time I like busted somebody, which was my job, I felt bad about it because, you know, people people got mad at me and I'd see him on campus and they'd be like, that's a fucking guy that wouldn't let me eat in a cafeteria. I, I hated that. Conversely, working the dish room was awesome. You know, like it was it was kind of like hot and wet and everyone was just like goofing around. Everybody back there was super chill. It was kind of stressful sometimes but for the most part you're just like splashing around and making a mess and power spraying at the end of the night just doing and if you told me i could have picked all my shifts i would have picked five ticket checking shifts and it would have been hell i would have hated it and i would have picked zero dish room shifts and i ended up becoming a dish room supervisor and working there all the multiple shifts a week you know i, I was like i only want to be in the dish room now so I tell that story because, like, if I were allowed to pick before I did any of it, I had a very clear idea of what I thought I wanted. But, like, that was based on nothing other than preconception. When people ask me, like, what, when you, if you came to work at this company, where, where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, I don't know. Just let me do a bunch of stuff. Let me work five different places. Like, let me figure it out. I don't know how. If you asked me in a job interview, it was like, I want to do this. But then something cool comes along. It's like, oh, you don't want to do this. You said you wanted to, you know, whatever it is. It's like, oh, you don't want to run the uh, the, the UV vis spectrometer. You wanted to do HPLC. And then what if I really liked doing something else, but I told them I didn't want to. Or if you're better at it. So if you would resent somebody holding you to an, uh, something you said when you knew nothing, why would you hold yourself to it? Why would you assume that you know everything going in and i really i was 18 i thought i knew everything and it 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 really took a situation where i loved something i thought i would hate and hated something i thought i would love that was a really important lesson for me and i had to do one shift of id checking for a whole semester and i couldn't wait for the semester to be over till i could request to be only in the dish room and I hope everyone has an experience like that. And I hope if you have it, you have it young enough for it to kind of impact the decisions you make for the rest of your life. So I have allowed myself to try things I didn't think I'd like. I didn't like law school, but I went. I didn't have to decide when I was 18 if I wanted to go to law school or not. I wasn't pre-law. I just got in because I did really well on the LSAT. Because it's just a, a are you smart test. You know? So... Right. Like if I couldn't have gone to law school because I said I wanted to do chemistry when I was 18, I would have been screwed. Don't don't put any limit on yourself that you would resent someone else putting on you. You don't know everything. Go experience some stuff. Go make sure you don't like something. Go make sure you actually don't like the taste of durian or sushi or, you know, all the crazy stuff that I've tried. Order a blue rare steak. You know, at a steakhouse, try a weird bottle of wine. Do do something that you have no idea if you'll like or not. And don't hold yourself to, I think I'll like this or I think I won't. Because when you're a parent and your kid's like, I don't like this. It's like, well, how do you know? Have you had it? No. Oh, 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 that's so annoying when kids say I don't like it. Oh, well, how do you know that? But I was that kid at 18. It's like, I don't want to work in the dish room. Well, how do you know? Have you worked in a dish room? No, nah, I just, I won't like it. 
like <laughs> if a two-year-old said something like that you'd be upset but like your own an 18 year old me thought that was fine you know it was half my life ago i've lived half of my life having had that experience so and that was the the half where all the cool stuff happened yeah and i i think it is so valuable um to have all those different experiences that when i've seen friends or colleagues that have had kind of one path only that they thought that this is what they were supposed to do, whether it's going to med school, law school, proceed, uh, and proceed to just do that one route. That's, those are the people that I worry about who have just only been successful because like they haven't had to pivot before. They may have not realized another option or some skill or something that they're passionate about that just wouldn't be in their one path in front of them. I, I think I fall in the camp of got to try things and I wouldn't necessarily call it a failure because you can, I think, turn most failures into some sort of learning opportunity. But, you know, I, I was thinking at some point maybe I was going to be a zookeeper. So I had an internship at a zoo and realized like hosing down birdshed was not what I wanted to do most out of the day. And I also didn't enjoy getting that splash back into my eyes and having crusty eyes all the time. But great experience. And I also got to like hang out with penguins too. So <laughs> that's always a fun story to share too. Okay. Feel like you're ready for the improv game. Yes. And. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. You don't, right. you don't say yes, I'm ready for improv. You say yes. And I'm ready for improv. Yes. Genius. I was, yeah. I was like, oh, I wonder how long it's been since you've done this, but pro already. I'm not going to tell you exactly what we're going to do first. Instead, I'm going to get some suggestions and then we'll incorporate that to the activity later on. So what I need, it's a few. I need an exclamation. Yikes. Yikes is a good exclamation. I use that one a lot because that can be used seriously or sarcastically. Yikes is a, that's a high quality exclamation. Okay. I'll go with yikes. I agree. Underutilized. Underutilized. Uh, A body part. Femur. I don't know why we were talking about femurs, but yeah, let's do it. Let's go with femur. Uh, a number. 17. A food. I said durian earlier, so let's say durian again. Because that's... Durian's very funny because it, it smells like garbage, and that's funny to me. And your favorite Avenger. Spider-Man. Okay, so because you spend a lot of time creating and managing content for games and also reviewing games... We're going to be reviewing a game, except the game doesn't exist. So we're just improvising that this game exists. And it's going to be on our new podcast, which also doesn't exist. But the name of the podcast is Yikes, It's Game Time. So the game is called Murdered by the Femur of God. And somehow we need to incorporate the following game aspects. So there's 17 dice. There's durian food tokens, and at the end, you get a Spider-Man trophy. Reviewing the instructions. All right, Jason, you ready for this issue of, yikes, it's game time. Yes, and I'm more than just excited. Uh, I've played a lot of uh, Murder by the Femur of God casually, so uh, the, the fact that we get to review it formally is an exciting opportunity for me. Yeah, I've also been waiting for a few months, too. I know this game came out about uh, six months ago, but it's time. I mean, the, the fans have been calling for it, so I'm really excited we're getting to it. 
I actually beta tested it back when it was called uh, Murdered by uh, an Elbow Drop from the Top Rope from Satan. And I really think that some of the cosmetic changes they made to, to the game made the new name make more sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree too. And even just like opening these instructions right now, they toned it down with the dice. They used to have 2,000 that you were going to roll each time just to move. But they're smart to get it down just to 17. And all all six-siders, too. You know, before, it was all different kinds. If I wanted to, if I lost one of the dice from uh, Murdered by an Elbow Drop from the Top Rope by Satan, um, I would be kind of screwed. I don't have an 11-sided die I can just swap in. So them sending you 17 six-siders with the, the special Spider-Man face on the six, that I think that's really helpful. But if you do kind of lose one of those die because look you're you're throwing 17 dice at a tabletop as hard as you can they end up everywhere right they're gonna go under the couch under the fridge you're you're gonna lose some dice probably so the 17 that come with it all have they glow in the dark which is which is crucial i think but they also have the spider-man face yeah you'll probably lose some so being able to swap in a six-sider from any other game crucial i think Crucial, yeah, and I really appreciate the game. It's consistent design of everything being bone themed, and the switch from two thousand dice to these seventeen dice that are made out of bone, also good. Really reduced the weight. I'm sure it probably saved them a bunch of money in the end too with shipping costs. Um, but I, I want to go to like the most interesting part of this game for me, in that your main goal is to collect durian food tokens. Because I've never seen this. In a game before and it's really nice that they've made all these tokens into scratch and sniff durian tokens as well i was gonna say i was literally gonna say scratch and sniff you <laughs> we are so on the the same page you, <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> yeah and and so it's like it's this unboxing experience you know you've, you've beta tested before like when you're unboxing it you can just have that ephemeral really impactful smell it just hits you right in the face when you open the box they they seal them in a plastic bag there's a warning on it but you know me i just tore right into it i didn't even unseal i didn't even unseal the plastic bag i just tore it open and uh it hit me right in the face it was like an elbow drop from satan right to the nose yeah Yeah. wasn't ready for it yeah and so after you do collect about 50 durian tokens there's a win condition and I feel like this is this is interesting because I haven't seen this in a game before, but you can choose if you want to win or give the Spider-Man trophy to your opponent. So if you win, you get bragging rights. But if you give that Spider-Man trophy to your opponent, the rules state they have to carry it around in their pocket for at least one week. Yeah, I, th- I think having three... Durian tokens to start out the next game because you won the the Spider-Man trophy. It's it helpful, right? That's a big leg up in the next game. But I think forcing someone who has to ride a, a city bus to carry a 17-inch, four-pound Spider-Man trophy, you know, around with them at all times. And it, this is something you, you you might see. You know, two people in the office they both got the the stretched out pocket that that comes from it, and you're like, ah, you yeah. You play uh, Killed by the Femur of God as well. Um, you, you'll start to recognize each other, you know. Uh, maybe invite them to, to game night because then you have two people who won the Spider-Man trophy. Um, 
squaring off against each other. Uh, both of them starting out at three Durian um, gives them a huge advantage, but makes them a target as well. Right. And I mean, I do have to say, like you're saying, you know, it has definitely helped me make friends at the office. <laughs> Even one of my coworkers was like, is that a 17 inch Spider-Man trophy you got in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? So we've had some good times too. All right. Any final comments? I feel like we've done our good justice to murdered by the femur of God on yikes. It's game time. Final thoughts, Jason. Final th- I will give this game a 3.5 out of five uh, metatarsals because we have to do a bone related system for all the, the bone related games because you know, Halloween's coming up where uh, this is bone month. So uh, until October 24th, it's going to be all bone games. And uh, you know, so uh, you have to refer to the dice as bones, roll those bones, you know, spike those bones at the table is what you're supposed to say. Um, so uh, I will give it 3.5 out of five metatarsals. It could have gotten up to four, uh, if those durian tokens had been glow in the dark like the dice are, but um, you know, nobody's perfect. Right. And just like we do for every other episode, we'll end with a PSA get your bones checked for Bone Month. I make no bones about that. And see. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, I wonder if that phrase is going to be thrown in there or not. Um, <laughs> cool. You're, you're fresh, man. You still got it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that, like uh, as much as stand ups like to be like, oh, improv, it's a it's not a uh, stand up. People sort of get snobby about improv. You know, um, what is riffing if not just improv? So anybody that likes to sit around and, and riff bits with their friends, they're doing improv. They just don't realize it. And with that, Jason, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh I I really enjoyed like the super deep dive that we went to. Um, I'm going to hype this up because that was really cool to learn. And also just a pleasure to improv with you a bit too. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I think I just may look into the magic market a bit more, but still lose a bit of money. If you are curious what EDH rec is and its data-driven approach to deck building, a link is in the show notes. And if you want to shape our raffle, head over to Twitter. We're at Deeper Than Data. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jeff Lorty, branding by Lauren Trader, and editing by Julia Nepp. And if you want to shape our raffle head over, and, 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 and editing by Julia Napper. But Deborah the Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Marketing by Devin Lorty. Branding by Lauren Trader. And editing by Julia Napper. <laughs> <laughs>